Tangents Abound presents A Two True Freaks production White Base Chronicles A Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin Manga Summary and Commentary Featuring your host, Aaron Henley Hello again, my friends, and welcome to Episode 5 of White Base Chronicles. My name is Aaron Henley, and thank you all for joining me. Well, first, uh, allow me to apologize for the roughly month-long delay on this episode. Uh, There were a few mitigating factors, and I think you, as my friends and listeners, should be aware of since you're giving me your time to listen to me talk about giant robots. First, when I uh, first recorded this episode, I was fighting a massive allergy slash head cold, and the audio wasn't the best, to put it mildly. Meow! I think you mean a dumpster fire! Meow! Harley! What have I told you about your editing comments? Meow! To keep doing them since this is the only bit you have! Meow! Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. You're right. But I'm side-glancing at you very strongly right now. Look at this side-glance! Look at it! So, in any case, I decided to re-record this episode and give you a better quality product. Second, as some of you might know from previous shows, I deal with chronic depression at times, and I just went through a bit of a spell. It mainly involved me not wanting to do anything, and editing a podcast just seemed too much work, which then led to a vicious cycle of downward spiraling that I only recently got out of. So, for those of you who do struggle with this disease, and it is a disease, there is no shame in talking to a professional, trusted family member, or friend about it. As the great Red Green says, I'm pulling for you. We're all in this together. Okay, now that we got the serious subject matter out of the way, let's check in on the feedback for the show. Huh. Not even an email from someone I know who is a regular emailer to a bunch of other shows. Okay, fair enough. You you, you get a pass since you just moved and are settling into a new job. But if you don't send me at least one email to whitebasedchronicles at gmail.com, I'll start to think that you don't like me anymore and you're going to make Dewey cry. He's too much a lovable lump that I can't stand to see him cry. Oh, wait a second. Something just popped in. What's this? An email from a K. Croc. Huh. Well, let's see what it says. Hey, you reference my best performance and don't even pay it off. Well, you're lucky I don't come over there for a little snack. Oh. <laughs> right. Uh, well, that's entirely my fault. I named Gotham, almost Gotham, just so I could use this gag and forgot to include it in my final notes. Well, thanks to the mysteries of podcasting, I can now share this with you. Dewey, you mind flipping that switch? (laughs) Sure thing, boss. (laughs) Boosters flaring, Gotham unleashes the Zaku One's ultimate attack. He threw a rock at him. It was a big rock. Followed by a massive shoulder charge. Well, K. Croc, I hope that makes up for my oversight. Also, I'm going to make a nice donation to the Florida wetlands in your name. But why do I hear soft growling? (laughs) So, since I'm slightly terrified now, and it's a bit harder on this episode to break it up for a commercial break than normal, we'll just break here, and I'll plug a show that I've been listening to and why I think you should check it out, too. 
Then when we return, the Zeonic Empire strikes back. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about Cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. And we're back. So, where to start things off on the right foot? Andy? Last time on Whitebase Chronicles. The Federation decides letting Char go is a good thing. Whitebase is impounded. And we get the first signs of Amro and Sela being more than meets the eye, but not quite robots in disguise. At least I'm 90% sure pretenders aren't a part of the Gundam franchise, though in later stories we do get cyborgs, so I don't know anymore. Well, what awaits our imprisoned heroes next? Let's begin with Chapter 7. We open with Char doing his best Ethan Hunt impression as he pulls off the impossible mission of infiltrating the most secure space base the Federation has. Granted, it's the only one, and he completely bypasses the Federation's security. Meanwhile, Amuro is screaming at the MPs that Char is coming and everyone's in danger. Well, their response is what you would typically expect from armed soldiers dealing with a semi-hysterical teenager ranting about a supposed attack. They are 100% completely understanding. Ah, just kidding. You know what they're gonna do. They reply, Either stand down, kid, or we're authorized to shoot ya. Well, while the guards are distracted with Amaro, Fra Bo hears a noise behind the, her, and the two kids manage to get a quick glimpse of Sela Mass, woman of action, taking matters into her own hands. She's sliding down a lift tube on her hands, ignoring the obvious friction burn pain, lands in an empty part of the ship, or it's maybe Luna 2, draws her sidearm and rushes down the corridor. Two things here. First, I'm pretty sure that in this one page of action, Sela has done more than in about the first 14 episodes of animation. Send your hate mail to whitebasechronicles at gmail.com if I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. At most, she just looks out of a radio screen. Second... I'm starting to find an attraction to blondes. Yeah. (laughs) Inside the base, Admiral Phoenix Joaquin is about to enjoy his morning coffee, having having stirred it precisely 32 times with 3 grams of sugar, no milk, or cream, when a massive explosion rips through an observation post, killing the entire crew and sending combat alarms ringing throughout the station. As damage control teams scramble to try to put out the various fires, Joaquin realizes, huh, well, it looks like not all Zeon are willing to play by my rules, and yeah, you know, Joaquin, it seems that they actually want to owe 
what's the word? Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. What, 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 what was it? Oh, yeah. Fight a war. <laughs> so, you know what, Keen? Maybe it was a bad idea to have your subordinates stop a fellow friendly cruiser from vaporizing it when they had the chance. Oh, I sure hope you can explain it to the families of those officers in the observation post who are now tiny bits of charred meat, Watkin. Who knows, maybe these families will even accept it, though I really doubt it. He turns to, I guess, his XO, who is never named, but as we met him last episode, he's a big bruiser type, bald with a pencil-thin goatee, and looks a lot like a certain character from Dragon Ball Z, but I respect Nappa far, far too much to call this guy Fetty Nappa, so he's still just Captain Baldy, and then orders the Magellan out to scare off Char. <laughs> well, I think Han Solo says it best. Good luck. You're going to need it. As the Magellan starts up, the Luna 2 traffic controller starts to give it clearance to launch. Unfortunately, the head officer, who frighteningly actually looks like me if I dropped about 40 pounds, so I think this might be my gu Gundam doppelganger, gets to see what his brain looks like for a split second as it's splattered all over the viewport. As the now-dead officer slumps down, the remaining crew turn to the hatchway to see a very heavily armed Xeon commando team grin and aim their rifles. About a minute later, the Nuch control team gives the Magellan permission to leave down the main exit tube, where the rest of the Xeon team has left a little surprise for the Federation forces. As the ship slowly traverses the long corridor, dozens of previously placed landmines explode around it. The shockwaves and explosions knock the ship and her crew around like dice in a Yahtzee can. The now out-of-control Magellan careens around the corridor, smashing conduits, bulkheads, and probably crewmen both in the station and on board the ship into something resembling a gray paste, until the now smoldering pile of slag that had been a starship is wedged firmly in the corridor and ends up blocking any other ship from exiting the space harbor. Now, right here, let me just point out, not the bestie, but it works. Right here, let me just point out that Lunity has been functioning not only as a base, but pretty much the equivalent of Space Pearl Harbor, with a good chunk of the remaining Federation Space Forces docked inside it. To say that all these ships are now sitting ducks is an understatement. Also, here's another thing. It didn't take Xeon, a massive space fleet, to almost cripple the remains of the Federation's navy. All it took was one commander who just turned 20, about 30 or so commandos, and a whole boatload of mines. Xeon, in the cost-benefit analysis, definitely is coming out ahead on this engagement. And I know you shouldn't run wars by the numbers, but right now, the numbers are kind of in Xeon's favor. And as a bookkeeper, I, I kind of keep track of that. Well, as the Magellan was careening around the tube, the its uh, destruction manages to cut power to a good chunk of the base. One of those places is the brig where most of our heroes have been trapped. We cut to Bright getting the worst wake-up call ever, as the multiple explosive shockwaves literally rock him like a hurricane out of bed. Please note that I wrote this before the massive hurricanes that have hit the southern United States, so if this is a bad joke, I do apologize. I, I wrote this about six months ago. He tries his best to get any of the guards' attention, but receives only silence in reply. 
He starts prying open the door, and, brief side note here, his right hand's veins start twitching with the exertion. As I have been referring to for quite some time, those of you who are previous Gundam fans, I know why you're smiling right now. Those who are new to the franchise, trust me, this is going to pay off in a big way later. Bright manages to get the hatch open just in time to see the rest of White Base's NCOs make their own escape. As they start to run towards the hangar bay, a group of very angry, heavily armed military police come storming down the corridor. In an actually pretty comedic moment, the, quote, senior staff of White Base immediately throw up their hands and surrender, screaming they're sorry like a gang of college-age kids who just got caught by a sorority house during a panty raid. I don't know if that's still a thing and if that's uh, misogynist or sexist or not. If so, I apologize. Please respect all women in college. The MPs, on the other hand, shove them out of the way and keep marching down the corridor because, <laughs> as we know, there's a bunch of Xeon commandos shooting the place up. However, I am slightly disappointed here because we don't get the scene from the anime of Kika distracting the guards, mainly by punching, stomping on their feet, only to have Bright and Amuro <laughs> them into unconsciousness. I was really looking forward to putting another check mark in my Kika is awesome tally. Oh well. Oh hey, speaking of military police, what about Amaro and Fra? We haven't seen them since the first page of our story and we're about halfway through. Well, the MPs they're dealing with get called off to reinforce other squads and Amaro starts a mad dash for the Gundam. Meanwhile, in Luna 2's command center, Watkin has realized that an officer of Char's caliber would attempt an attack on Luna 2 with only a single light cruiser and little offensive firepower. See, I told you last episode we'd come back to that. Speaking of our dashing, red-clad space commander, he has reached the Mang Hangar and suddenly gets a dose of Mobile Suit Envy as he imagines what piloting a Gundam would be like. <sighs> you and me both, Char. You and me both. Oh, if only you ever got the chance. But always in motion is the future. Wait, wait, what? What's this? Uh, through the force, things you will see. Other places, the future, the past. Oh, I can't believe it. The midichlorians are actually working. I, I see a. A blonde-haired man in a, in a sleeveless red shirt wearing amazing aviators piloting a Gundam? Uh, uh, could it be? Oh, wait, no. His name is Quattro Bagina, not Char Asnable. Oh, oh well. Though he apparently drives both a Gundam and some really sweet-looking solid gold mecha that makes me think it could be a Gundam. I guess this Quattro guy must be very important in a future Gundam story. Too bad he's not Char, though. wonder what happens to him at the end of the story. Huh. Well, we'll have to get there. Back to the present future time. Char doesn't have the time to what I'm assuming would be hacking into the Gundam for any Grand Theft Gundam to happen. Oh, I have no doubt he could do it, but just not in a few minutes. That's reserved for genetically altered protagonists in a reboot series made in the early 2000s. So Charo will just have to settle for grabbing whatever he can with a thumb drive. Also, you know, it's nice to see that thumb drives are still a thing in the Universal Century. I always love those things. But 
Now, let me, let me just pause here for just a second and mention something that really ticks me off. Prepare for Gundam Rant! The Gundam has been under lock and key by Watkins forces since their arrival on Luna 2. Okay, that makes sense. Here's what doesn't make sense. These guys are both so overconfident and self-righteous that they leave the hatch to the Gundam's cockpit wide open when the battle starts. These guys made such a big deal over how the Gundam is a top-secret weapon that shouldn't be used at all, and yet they leave it open for anyone to come stumbling into the thing. Hey, Biff, Biff, come over here. Biff, help, help me out here. Butthead. Thank you, Biff. Even Dr. Ray, and we all know how well he's done at keeping secrets about this thing, at least kept the Gundam locked during the Side 7 battle. You know, if, if it wasn't for the fact, Luna 2, that you're offering a possible recourse to get si 7 civilians off White Base, I'd say let every Fetty on Luna 2 burn. You're still in a wartime situation. I'm pretty sure top-secret war materials should be treated with a modicum of excessive precautions. Kind of like keeping your auxiliary bridge and, you know, anti-air guns off-limits to civilians. But that's a whole other rant from last episode. So, before Char gets a chance to start downloading anything he can and feel the rich Corinthian leather of the Gundam seat, uh, tragedy, obviously... A feminine voice orders him to stand down and drop his weapon. Turning around, we get a full-page shot of Salem Mass Woman of Action, gun drawn and steadily pointed at Char's chest, and as I mentioned, I'm quickly developing a thing for blondes right now. In fact, I'm willing to bet Sela maybe is a descendant of either Lady J or Scarlet. That's how sure I am she is a descendant of a G.I. Joe. We get the usual, don't move or I'll shoot, while the guy slowly moves forward cliche, but I gotta give Char props here. It does take a set of brass bells to walk towards a level steady gun pointed straight at your heart. That's right, unlike most of the times when we see this cliche with, you know, the person holding the gun just wobbling it and shaking it, you know, like they've had way too much caffeine. No, this thing, this gun is one trigger pull away from ending the Red Comet. Char even follows Sayla's commands to not only remove his suit's helmet, but his mask. That's right, my friends. For the first time, we get to see Char as Nabel's face in this story. All the fangirls swoon, and probably some of the fanboys, because you can tell that Char doesn't just shampoo. Oh no. He conditions and revitalizes that sweeping golden mane of his. To say he's a poster child for Iloriel isn't just for women or Final Fantasy villains is an understatement. I don't think even Sayla's hair looks that good. In fact, his Adonis features and broad, shining locks freeze Sayla into shock. I'm sure that's the reason she looks so surprised and not for anything else. Char acts on Sayla's shock and kicks a wrench on the gantry, which I can only assume was left behind by the idiot engineer who left the Gundam's hatch open. Biff, c come back! What, what, what did you call this guy? Please repeat. Butthead! Thank you, Biff. The wrench strikes her wrist with the impact, and the pain causes her to lower her gun arm. Char bolts to wrench the rest of her arm behind her, and for a brief instant, the two blonde-haired, blue-eyed, very beautiful people are locking gazes with each other and something happens. 
No, 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 no. Not anything like that. Though, this is Japan, so nope, nope, no. Family-friendly show. Not going down that road. No, sir. Char's eyes narrow. Almost in recognition, but I might be imagining that. And he looks at the incapacitated sailor even closer as she continues to struggle out of his grip. But before anything else happens, the moment is interrupted as Amaro finally arrives in the hangar. Grabbing a fallen pipe for an improvised weapon, he starts he starts charging toward the pair. That's a brave effort, but there's a couple things we need to keep in mind here. The gantry Char and Sela are on is a good 20 to 30 feet in the air with no ramp leading to it that we can see on panel. Also, Amaro, you only have a single shot if you throw that pipe at Char. Considering you have fired multiple shots of energy that are both wider and longer than that pipe and probably wider and longer than you yourself, and you have missed every single time, I think you have a better chance of braining, of braining Sela before hitting Char with that thing. So unless you have proficiency with improvised weapon and Hunter's Mark locked on Char, don't even bother breaking out your dice for this roll, Amaro. Oh, man, I, uh, I think all those D&D podcast binges are starting to get to me. But, you know, we don't have to worry about any of this. As Char pushes Sayla to the floor, angles what I thought has been his sword this whole time, but was really a laser rifle, and blasts the pipe right out of Amaro's hand, nearly taking the hand with it. And, you know... Considering the Star Wars references involving Char so far, if Char had blasted Amuro's right hand off while holding a hilt-shaped piece of pipe and then declared he was Amuro's older brother, I wouldn't have batted an eye at this point. At least it would explain what happened to the hand and what it held a lot better than a recent billion-dollar box office hit that leaves the worst plot hole in my favorite franchise since Space Bacteria giving you superpowers. Wait, wait, where, where was I? What, what am I talking about? Oh, right, Gundam. Char spits in disgust at the Federation using kids for their war, though I think he is forgetting he's personally responsible for a lot of men of fighting age, leaving vacancies for those kids to fill. He reapplies his mask and helmet and leaves to rejoin his team. Once reunited, the Xeon forces dodge bullets and explosions and retreat back to their cruiser, with absolutely no casualties that we see, and they leave nothing behind but flames and death in their wake. Sometime later, Ryu, Hayato, Kai, and the rest of the white base mobile suits finally arrive at the base. Well, the smoldering, smoking wreckage of a base, anyway. Though that does leave the question of just how smoke is traveling in space without oxygen to feed it or stop, stop, Aaron. That way leads to madness. Don't go down that road. A bit surprised at just what kind of party they missed, Ryu finally makes contact with Bright on the ship. Since earlier it had been under radio silence, you know, while it was impounded. Also, nice to know Watkin was willing to write off six friendly mobile suits in their crews, since he made no attempt to have White Base pick them up before dragging it to the space dock. You know, maybe it was Captain Baldy who made that call, but either way, it was a bad call. Bright orders them to get inside the base because, well, there's a lot of work to do. Also, White Base's bridge is a bit cramped as the bridge officers of the now-wrecked Magellan are with Bright for some reason. So it's either they're on um, White Base or it's a comm room in Luna 2. I'm not 
entirely sure. Yeah, that is not good tea. We get a neat little transition of watching the gun cannons and gun tanks slowly dismantling the wreckage live to the same shot on a monitor in the Luna 2 sickbay where Captain Paolo Cassius finally is placed on their medical watch. In a rather touching scene, really, we learn that Captain Paolo served as Watkins' mentor during Phoenix's Academy days. Watkins even shows a glimmer of not being a complete scumbag by being deferential to Paolo, even though at this point he vastly outranks the reservist officer. Paolo reminds the younger officer that he was the best student he ever had, but had a tendency to be inflexible and resist changes. He tells Watkins to trust the people in charge of White Base as they have proven to him how capable they are of doing the job. With a final statement of passing the torch to the new generation and a new age, Captain Cassius Paolo dies. You know, I have to hand it to Yasuhiko-san here. I was going to make a joke about how little impact Cap the captain makes on us, mainly unless you count the shrapnel going through his body, but... I genuinely feel something for both the captain and Joaquin in this scene, and, you know, I tip my hat to your writing, sir. That, that's good writing. We cut back to the work of dislodging the Magellan from the Exoway, as Hayato is amazed that giant robots could easily move hundreds of tons of battleships in zero gravity, as they are at shooting hundreds of tons of battleships in zero gravity. Ryu just mumbles to himself, are you for real, kid? And the Magellan is cleared out of the way to crash ignominiously onto Luna 2's surface, as a reminder of the folly of overconfidence, while Captain Baldy weeps like the Rancor Keeper after Luke killed it. The Magellan's funeral is followed by a full-dress funeral of Captain Paolo, with every Federation officer in attendance. Mariah Stage whispers to Bright that a good chunk of the Side Zone refugees will be staying, despite some reasonable misgivings about the security of the base. As our heroes watch Captain Paolo's coffin be sent among the stars, he sailed, I have this last thought to offer. Others? Huh. I've got to bow. I can say only this. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most shrapnel filled. We don't have much time to grieve, however. The crews got to get their ship and the Gundam back to Jaburo, and the Amazon shipping dates hate getting revised. But we did get rid of a lot of the refugees, so that's a good thing. However, because Karma hates me, we also get a new character who is, to me anyway, the second worst character in the entire story. And I'm not even counting literally Space Hitler in that list. So who could earn my ire and rage this much? Well, let's get to it. 
Chapter 8 begins with the white base, I'm assuming mostly resupplied and definitely a couple thousand refugees lighter, leaving Luna 2 with a Federation destroyer named the Salamis. Again, as usual, whether this is the name of the ship or the class, since we see more of these later, it's a bit murky. As the two ships leave Luna 2 airspace, Admiral Joaquin muses that they've done all they can to help what might be the turning point for the Federation. He also makes a statement about the chilly times they're living in, and I'm confused as to whether this is a slight reference to the ancient Chinese curse of living in interesting times or not. Or it could just be possible that the heating elements in Luna 2 have gone on the fritz again. We cut to inside the White Base's hangar where the Gundam is getting prepped for emergency launch, just in case someone, oh, I don't know who, but I'm pretty sure wears a mask and has an obsession with red paint, decides to interrupt their landing. We also find out that Kai's gun cannon was practically scrapped by Lieutenant Almost Gotham's mobile suit grappling, so the ship is now down to two gun cannons and three gun tanks. Huh, guess throwing a big rock at space tanks is a valid strategy. Also, I'm going to be keeping track of how many mobile suits White Base has, because those numbers will, will change as the story progresses, and there's some quite frankly unexpected but neat ways up ahead. In fact, I can't wait to get to that scene. <laughs> I, I kind of cheered. We cut from the hangar bay to the ready rooms, since the Gundam isn't the only one getting suited up, as we see Amuro putting on a pilot's normal, or as it's easier just to call it a spacesuit, because, hey, you know, wearing just a t-shirt and jeans isn't a good idea for space combat. Just a brief side note, though, Char never wears a normal suit in mobile suit combat, even in space. And it's probably because Xeon uh, normal suits just aren't stylish enough, and, and, you know, he has standards. Ryu is helping Amuro with the seals and backup oxygen equipment and basically doing what any good NCO does for a rookie officer on their first deployment. I love this little interaction with Ryu as he's trying to keep Amuro relaxed and he's joking but also being a little serious because, you know, a slight crack in the cockpit and you're going to be breathing vacuum pretty quick. As Amuro slides the sun visor down and the seals pressurize, he mentions how he feels choked. Sure, it's because of the now-enclosed space he's in, but, you know, it could almost be like he's feeling choked by recent events, forcing him into a military situation he never once dreamed of, but has no other option at this point. Also, he's still coping with his I'm-becoming-a-man-now feelings, and he gets a phone call from Big Brother Bright ordering him to stand by in the Gundam. Amuro quickly reverts back to his I know, Mom! mode, and Bright's hair starts standing on end, and he just about crushes his control console. Mariah again plays Peacemaker by telling Bright to be the bigger man. Bright responds that it's not getting to him, not at all, the finger grooves and the battle steel on the right arm of his chair notwithstanding. Mariah tries cheering him up with her water or juice pouch, and teasing him that she's hoping she can handle the atmospheric landing, despite only doing one, doing the procedure once on a space version of a single-engine airplane versus now the equivalent of an Airbus. Well, between the water, Mariah's gentle teasing flirting, and the possibility of a fiery death, Bright calms down. Also, even though they have the added firepower and guidance instructions from their escort, Mariah is worried that Char will make one last attempt. Awful lot of pretty reasonable logical foreshadowing here. The bridge crew's reverie is then interrupted with the soothing, 
In the same way, an air horn can be considered soothing, tones of Lieutenant Reed. I'm still trying to come up with a witty first name that is safe for a family-friendly show and not male anatomy related, and all I'm getting is bent, and that's just too easy. You guys deserve my best when it comes to punny names. Reed's attitude makes Amaro's tame in comparison, and believe me, it only gets worse from here. Oh, by the matrix does it get worse. The white base then goes through a slight transformation. Years before another famous anime space battleship does a similar thing, as the outstretched wings fold in behind. Think kind of like the wings of an F-14 Tomcat that fold in close to the fuselage when it goes for speed. And also the radar and communications equipment fold up along the bridge into recessed areas so they don't melt. As the landing approach begins and everything seems quiet, Bright does the absolutely worst thing he could possibly do in this situation. He says, out loud, well, we did it! We shook Char off and everything's nice and quiet. As I facepalm, we find that the words barely escape his lips before Operator Bill screams out, Moose-Eye detected! Bright, come here, young man. Surely you've read some kind of comic book or seen a movie in your 19 years of existence. You know you should never say the words, smooth sailing from here, what could possibly go wrong, that guy's a week from retirement or fresh from the academy, or, hey, let's check out that log cabin. You're just inviting disaster, man. As Bill and Ted scramble to get as clear a picture as they can with just the internal devices on the ship, the crew looks on in shock as Char returns for, what is it now, round three, four? If we count the ground assault on Luna 2, is it, is it really round five? Cutting to the moose site, we find out that, despite the loss of Gotham's Raider, they were able to get the three Zakus he brought on board and will use them to assault Whitebase. Thus, he fulfilled his matter of honor. Good for you. The bad news is that neither their cruiser or mobile suits are designed for re-entry. So if they get caught in the gravity well, <laughs> and of course we can guess that at least one will be due to this warning we're given, well... The best advice I have is, pray the G-Force kills you before the heat does. This is a bold maneuver of Char's, since both the Salamis and Whitebase would be focusing on the complex task of re-entry, and also, no one's actually crazy enough to engage with such a short time window, or the fact that if you miss your window, you burn like a marshmallow you just dropped in the campfire. The Salamis releases the re-entry capsule that will guide Whitebase, and sadly, Lieutenant Reed is in said capsule. Look, okay, I know this guy has only been around for th a total of three panels so far, so how could I form such a negative opinion of the guy? Well, if his manga counterpart is anything like his anime version, I'd have thrown him in an empty missile tube, shot him at the Musai, and at least he'd have done something useful. Will I have my mind changed? We'll see. Whoa! There's a DeLorean out front! And... It's me! Me? What are you doing here? Hey, just want to let you know, I'm from the future after I've read the entire manga. Spoiler warning, no. No, I don't. Bye!
Oh, okay. Huh. Well, don't you just love podcasting time travel shenanigans? Well, to offset this horrible readiness, we get something special as a lot of the kids on board gaze at their first sight of our blue gem of a world that, despite a lot of people's best efforts, hasn't completely tried to kill us yet out of sheer revenge. Only to be disappointed at their view as reentry shields cover up the viewports so the interior of the ship doesn't become an oven. We're then treated to this. Attention, passengers. This is your stewardess, Fraubo, speaking. As we will shortly be entering Earth's atmosphere, the ship will be shaking quite a bit. That is perfectly normal air turbulence and not enemy fire impacting the ship. In the event of an emergency, please hold on to any of the fixed points on board, such as railings and furniture. If in the event of a water landing, Lieutenant Reed's body may be used as a flotation device as long as it's in the face-down position. Thank you for flying white-based space lines. Huh. Good job, Frau. You know, I'm sure the civilians are totally buying that excuse. No sense having them panic while we're dealing with reentry calculations, hull temperature, air resistance, and our mortal enemy shooting at us. Bill and Ted managed to get enough of the sensors working to determine that four Zakus have been launched, and everyone knows just what that means from the attack on the Papua earlier. Gotham will have his revenge! Bright orders the Gundam to launch to try to delay the approaching Zakus long enough for the white base to get too low in the atmosphere for them to follow. Amuro freaks out a little in the cockpit when Sayla tells him about the approaching enemy and he's all, Four? And then no one told me just how many forces the enemy has? They're, they're cheating. They're cheating. I'm supposed to know everything they have. I, I'm the protagonist. They shouldn't have any chance of beating me. That's not fair. Sayla tells him to man up. Do your job, and, oh, here's a tissue now. So, also with the baby like his bottle, too. Okay, she doesn't do that last part, but she could have, and I wouldn't have blamed her. She tells Amaro that, in addition to the four Zakus, he only has four minutes to fight them, and then to get back inside the hangar. Otherwise, he's about to do a little uh, windsurfing of his own. Amro complains again about having to keep track of ammo, the enemy, and the ticking clock. Despite, you know, all three things are able to be shown quite clearly on the massive HUD display nine inches from his face. For crying out loud, Amro, you're a freaking otaku. Don't tell me that in UC0079, you can't keep track of the same stuff any half-decent MMO player can do. Man, you're really bringing out the Gundam rants on me today. Sayla decides to give him a little carrot to the anxious teenager by going all cutie-flirty, telling him, Oh, you can do it. I know you can. Wink. Amuro suddenly realizes that he's a horny teenager as he instantly perks up the hot blonde on the view screen. The power of boners is infinite, my friends. You'd be amazed what horny teenage manga protagonists can do with such power. International and intergalactic conflicts have been ended by one teenage protagonist suddenly getting a possible chance at sex in the show's main mech. So much that it's become a trope at this point. Well, the Gundam launches and Lieutenant Reed starts yelling as he sees the Gundam pass them by like I pass an old lady doing 40 on the freeway. Now, because I try to be fair in this recap slash review, no matter how much it galls me to do so, I will give Reed one point of fairness. 
that due to the Minovsky particles and atmospheric interference, his capsule has no clue what's going on behind them. And believe me, that really hurts to say. I've had more pleasant root canals. We got back to the, uh, Char and the Moosite, where we see that those little Xeon Sol shuttles that got dropped off with the Zaku's last episode, remember those guys? Well, they finally come into play as they launch to act as the reentry vehicles for Char and any of the red-shirt Zaku's who survive the next four minutes. Somehow, I have a feeling there will be plenty of room on board by the time all's said and done. So, we now get a pretty neat space battle of bullets, missiles, and lasers flying everywhere. Amuro is a bit taken aback that this time, the Zaku's are going after White Base and not the Gundam. Amuro manages to take out one Zaku with another beam rifle decapitation, and man, I love this artwork. Ryu, Kai, Hayato, and the rest of the mobile suit pilots fire the white base anti-air turrets, but the Zakus are just too fast for them. You know, I think World War II anti-air gunners probably face the same problem. By the time your bullets have reached a point you think the enemy will be at, they're already gone. Amuro finally gets a beat on a second suit when a certain red Zaku flies upside down to the Gundam. Think the scene from Top Gun with Maverick and the MiG at the beginning, and Char delivers his own international relations sign. Another swift Zaku kick to the Gundam's chest. Char isn't playing around this time. He proceeds to just smash the Gundam with every punch and kick he can do in a few brief seconds of flight time. Amuro is going to need some aspirin when he gets back to base. As the battle keeps raging, White Base gets hit even more. The ship suffers multiple hull breaches, fires spread throughout the corridors. As crewmen rush to put out the flames, the ship brutally takes each hit and keeps going. They finally reach the point of no return and are just about to call an Amro when a panicked Lieutenant Reed reports a mayday from his now smoking capsule. Bright has no choice but to allow an emergency landing in the stern hangar. The hangar that was Amro's only way into the ship. Once the crippled capsule lands, guess who makes a beeline to the bridge to find out just what is going on and why the gunman's still out there? Because, you know, the explosions, gunfire, missile traces, men screaming, weren't a clue. Bright, still the respectful lower officer, informs the lieutenant that it's because of his capsule that the Gundam can't land right now, and he's a bit busy dealing with Char. I'm just going to read... Reads dialogue right here and do my best Gilbert Gottfried impression because, well, I'll let you be the judge. The, the Gundam is still fighting out there? The, 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 this, this is absurd! Get, get it back here right now! You, Lieutenant Junior Gray Bright, are about to turn the highest secret of the Federation forces into space us. This calls for a court martial! I'll be testifying against you when you get to Jabiro. HQ is going to hear about this royal snafu of yours. And now for Bright's response. That's up to you, sir. I don't care what people will say about me, so long as we make it to Jabiro alive. Reed, you done pushed the wrong middle manager today, sir. You done goofed. Meanwhile, the Gundam is still getting the tar beaten out of it, but with a blast of miniature chest rockets... Whoa, whoa, chest rockets? Hey, hey, I thought those were just gold vents on the chest. Nope, they're also rocket launchers. Amuro manages to get away from Char. 
The little Komusai shuttle warns that time's up. Char and one of the Zakus immediately dart to the shuttle. The remaining one keeps going after the Gundam. Both mobile suits continue plummeting through the atmosphere, with heat blooms now starting to envelop them. The bridge crew continued trying to reach Amuro to get back to the ship, but time runs out and they have to seal any remaining equipment and now enter the standard re-entry blackout period. It's really a pretty emotional scene as everyone looks downtrodden and is really just praying for a miracle right now. We cut over to the Xeon shuttle as we hear the Zaku pilot desperately calling for help, though he's already dead. As we get the next few pages of the Zaku beginning to disintegrate, Char vows that the pilot's death won't be in vain. Yeah, considering he's never mentioned again, that rings a bit hollow. Okay, I, I don't mean to, brag, to rag on this, but we do need to talk about another key difference between the original anime and our story. In the anime, this scene isn't really that dangerous as you might think, because Amuro pulls out his trusty How to Operate Your Gundam for Dummies manual and finds out that there's a special heat film built in the Gundam shield that pops out and wraps the Gundam up like a slice of leftover meatloaf. So this turns an incredibly dangerous and tense situation into, well, about as dangerous as the Saran Wrap S that Superman throws at Zod in Superman 2. So, in one brief moment, the threat of burning up an Earth's atmosphere is turned into a mild inconvenience at best. The manga, however, treats this scene with a bit more... gravitas. So, remember Superman Returns and the Airplane Rescue, arguably the best thing about that movie? This is our equivalent of that scene. Fighting against the very world itself, Amuro struggles to maintain control of the Gundam. Desperately, he angles it to reach the descending white base, hoping that the larger ship itself could protect him from the heat. Our final shot of the Gundam is from below white base, the tiny, relatively speaking, mobile suit attempting to reach it. But we don't know if it does. As the ship completes re-entry and systems begin to come back online, Everyone turns to Sayla at the comm desk, hoping to hear something from Amuro. She reports the Gundam's comms are online, but there's no response. Everyone rushes to the viewboards as Sayla continues desperately to try to get Amuro to respond, fearing that though the machine survived, the pilot didn't. We cut to the Gundam's cockpit where the exhausted Amuro unbuckles his restraint and slumps against the cockpit. Well... More like falls face first, as the now-kneeling Gundam has the cockpit tilted, and Amuro is getting his first taste of standard gravity in about, oh, well, 11 years or so. As the blast shields lower, both the ship's crew and the civilian refugees are overjoyed to be planet-side and bask in an early dawn. However, not everyone is in such a festive mood. Surprised at both the durability of the Gundam and its pilot, Char radios to the headquarters of Xeon's North American forces to inform their commander that he's arrived. We cut to beautiful Beverly Hills, located in sunny Los Angeles, where a lavender-haired teenager received Char's report. Twirling his hair with his fingers, the young man offers to take the white base off Char's hands for a bit, and Colonel Garma Zabi begins to prepare a little welcoming ceremony of his own for our heroes. Whew. 
And with that, we conclude volume one. <laughs> yeah, that's right, my friends. We have finished this part of White Base on the Run and the first volume of the manga. So one down, 11 to go. But the question remains, are things going to get any better on Earth than in space? I have a suspicion that no. No, it's not. There's new surprises on the horizon, my friends, with new allies and new enemies. Not the least of which is the lavender-haired colonel we just met. Exactly who is this young man besides sharing the last name of an admiral we met briefly way back in Chapter 5? Well, Andy? Next time on White Base Chronicles! We start this party with a bang and Garma's bringing the noisemakers. Reed makes an even stronger case for getting thrown out of an airlock. Amaro deals with some, well, active traumatic syndrome, copyright fuzzy Sinowaki, all rights reserved, and the fanship that's lasted 40 years sets sail. All this and more on the next episode of White Base Chronicles. You have been listening to White Base Chronicles, a Tangents Abound presentation. This podcast is 100% free and no money is made in either the production or distribution of this podcast. All sound clips used in this podcast are owned by the respective copyright holders and are used for review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Want to see just what I'm talking about for yourself? Check out whitebasechronicles.blogspot.com where you can see panels from the manga that I've uploaded that tie into each episode, usually captioned with my, quote, witty commentary. Want to follow along with me? Well, each volume can be found at various book retailers for about the price of a standard trade paperback, or for free at comic-walker.com. Just click the language button to switch to English, and Gundam The Origin is the first listing. The site updates one chapter monthly, and each chapter is in full color, which makes this a steal, and I would recommend you dropping them a line to thank them for letting us see this for free. And who knows, by the time the show ends, he may have the entire series available. Care to drop me a line about the show, or grab the digital equivalent of a torch and pitchfork? You can send emails to whitebasechronicles at gmail.com, or at Twitter at ahenley2011. Thanks for listening to my show, and please check out the other shows that can be found on the Two True Freaks Network. There's such a wide variety of geekdom covered that I'm sure there's something out there that tickle your fan bones. Take care, my friends. And in case I don't see you, good morning, good evening, and good night.